Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi. So before we get into this episode, we wanted to thank you for listening and let you know a couple of things you can do to support the show and make sure we can keep bringing it to you every single week. First, and frankly, most fun things first, our Secret Menu membership program, which is a once-weekly members-only newsletter that costs four bucks a month, which comes out to, you know, a dollar a week. If you enjoy our free Monday newsletter, chances are you'll probably like this one too. It's got shopping picks, gift guides, recipes, rundowns of our favorite things in various categories like what are the cute toilet brushes? A question I know you have been asking. And it even has an advicey column where we answer audience questions. Sign up for it at a thing or two hq.com and you'll even get access to all the back issues you missed while you were sleeping on it. And here's something else you can do to help us out that doesn't cost a dime. Subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You may have noticed that discovery is still stupidly hard when it comes to podcasts and subscriptions and reviews make a big difference in helping us get on the radar of other new listeners. All right, so you want a third thing? Support our advertisers. Use these codes that they give us when you shop with them. We only work with brands we believe in and we hope you love them as much as we do. We're ridiculously grateful to you for listening and for showing us your support in whatever way you do. Thank you. And now on to the show. Welcome to A Thing or Two, a deep dive into stuff we think more people should know about. I'm Claire Mazer. And I'm Erica Cerullo. If you want more of where this came from and want to support us in general, head to a thing or two hq.com and sign up for Secret Menu, which will get you weekly access to members-only content. To share your thoughts on this episode or anything at all, leave us a voicemail at 833-632-5463 or DM us on Instagram at a thing or two hq. And as a reminder, we're offering free ad reads to Black-owned businesses. Hit us up at podcast at a thing or two hq.com. Hi. Hi. We have a really pressing topic to discuss today. First, first things up on the, this episode. Artichokes. Yeah. We're putting the art in artichokes. <laughs> <laughs> or something. I don't know. <laughs> it does feel like it's ripe for a lot of punning. Like it's like arty chokes. I don't know. I haven't quite gotten <laughs> it yet. You definitely led with the, the best and most obvious one. Um, you've been Definitely on a, most obvious. <laughs> you've been on a real artichoke kick lately. So here's the thing. Obviously, like got so got so tired of cooking, of mm-hmm. course, but mm-hmm. still have to eat. This yeah. is the struggle. <laughs> um, 
So when I've been wanting something that feels like kind of like, ooh, a fancy or like elevated dinner, but without mm-hmm. having to do shit to achieve that goal, yeah. I have been falling back on artichokes and I have an instant pot and I got it as a gift last year or the year before. And I'm certain that there are so many wonderful ways to use it, but truly the only thing I use it for right now is making artichokes. I have an instant pot too, which I similarly use for like mostly just one to two things. These are for oatmeal and rice. Like it's honestly a a giant rice cooker. I do need to use it for rice. Um, That is the other thing where I'm like, I do know I'd like it for that. So that'd be two things I use the instant pot for. And like occasionally I use it for other things, but it gets a lot of play as a rice cooker. And then second most as an oatmeal cooker. But the one reason I don't cook artichokes more is because they take so long to cook on the stovetop. That was the thing. It was like basically an hour to boil them. Oh, yeah. Which like I don't, by the time I'm, you know, whatever. I just like never realize it's going to take that long. Of course. um, Because it doesn't seem like it should, which is not how these things work. But in the Instant Pot, I will, I'll link to the recipe, recipe, like quotes, really. <laughs> instructions, um, let's call instructions, them. Instructions, <laughs> instructions. You basically are putting them in, you put like a cup of water, like an inch of water, whatever. Mm-hmm. You put them in face down, face down? I don't have faces. But Top down? Stems, yeah. stems up. Um, up. <laughs> stems up. And you you cook them in the Instant Pot for like 15 to, tw- I cook them for 20 minutes, basically. Wow, no that's incredible that it's that fast. It's so fast. And granted, the Instant Pot also has to come to temperature. And right. Like, of course, like all of yeah. that. So it's like actually, you know, a half an hour, but right. that's half the time. Um, and and they you, come out perfectly. That's it. I really do need to do, do this. Artichokes were my like single girl meal when I moved to New York that I used to make kind of a lot. And I just have not made them in so long. So do you cut, off a little bit on the stem and a little bit on the top. So they're flat on top. And that's like all the prep. And I put some uh, like lemon slices in the bottom of the Instant Pot too. But you know, I mean, those are, that's because it makes me feel like I'm making dinner as opposed to just turning on an appliance. You put a really important question here in the show notes that I'd like to explore. Who in their right mind was the first person who decided to eat one of these things? Like this, I think artichokes are the number one spot for me of asking that question. Sea urchins, maybe number two. Of like, (laughs) what made you think that this is something you could eat? I actually think sea urchins feels like really obvious because the texture is so like, hmm, that looks like an an interesting taste of sorts. No, but the outside, oh, Claire. Yes, you picked yes, up that yes. thing out of the ocean. You're right, like, well, yeah. let's cut this open and <laughs> like, see what's no. inside. No. I agree with you about artichokes. It was like a desperate caveman. It had to yeah. be. Or a woman. You can only eat like whatever, 20% of this and thing. And then who figured out that when you get to the heart, if you take out that spiky stuff in the heart, then it's, it's so amazing. good and sweet. Yeah. It's, it's like the best thing you've ever eaten. It's really confusing. I'm with you. Hey, what, what do you, you what do you pick, dip your artichoke? That's what I was going to ask you. So this was my dad's like go to mom's away meal one yeah. of when we were growing up, and we would always eat them with my dad. And he would basically give us two options. Um, one was melted butter with lemon and salt, so like basically like crab lobster style. Yeah, yeah. And then the other was he would make a vinaigrette, but it was like everything normal, just like olive oil vinegar, salt, and pepper, lots of pepper, but he would always stir in mustard powder. And I don't know why that was like an artichoke specific thing, but that's, those are my two go-tos basically for artichokes. In my house, the options we were given and our our artichokes were microwaved, like always microwaved. Um, For how long? I, Claire, I couldn't tell you. And I, and it's, it is like definitely faster, but you never, but the, it also just like cooks them differently. Yeah. I can imagine Um, it being kind of mushy in a way you wouldn't. Yeah. Our options were 
Hellman's mayonnaise or Delicious. melted butter. Um, and so my I've I've taken Hellman's mayonnaise for the last, you know, 30 years. That's my that's my angle. That's um, sounds so good. Hellman's it's mayonnaise, so good. outstanding product. It just becomes an excuse to just like eat a lot of mayonnaise mm-hmm. um, and pretend that again, that that's a dinner. Thomas mixes, and I've started to do this a little too, although I do like uh, different proportions. French's classic yellow mustard into mayonnaise. Mm, okay. Um, so yeah, like it does like a like mustard it. mayo. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We used to do that on sandwiches a lot. Yeah, it's delicious. That being good. Yeah. Um, you know, the other thing that I feel sort of insane recommending, but I really do just enjoy them so much. We have these artichoke plates. Mm. So they basically, they're round. I could then, see how having a plate would motivate you to eat them more. Yes. And so it's like, okay, they're, they you can find them online from Etsy, from like these vintage Mallorcan and Portuguese companies. But basically they're round and then they have a little spot in the center that almost looks like where you would like, dip and like a chip and dip or something. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where you set the artichoke. Yeah. And then there's another little like vessel off to this, another little like compartment across from that little dish where you put the sauce. Oh, so it's, you have a spot all in sauce. one. I love yeah. this. And then the rest of the plate you use for your like little leaves. Also speaks to our desire to have less dishes to do. Exactly. I don't need a separate bowl to put the artichoke yeah. leaves in because that's annoying. I'm and it just that. sits up so nicely on its own. Like it's not like flopping around on its side. Hey, as an expert in this category, when are artichokes in season? Oh my gosh. I really should know this, but I could not tell you. That's okay. Our listeners can Google it. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to have to. They're really going to have to. Another thing that I have been turning to is artichoke hearts. Mm-hmm. Um during this like moment in time, it does yes. feel like another way to make like truly boring dinners feel a little bit less boring. And there's this back pocket canned pasta that I was making, especially earlier in quarantine, where I just feel like I had like so many canned things all of a sudden that I needed because to we were all through. At some point, the actual grocery stores were also going to shut down and we needed to just have so many non-perishables. Yes, exactly. So you'd mix like leftover beans or lentils or whatever and feta and hearts of palm and celery. But again, that's optional. And that was delicious. And I also make this sardine pasta with almonds and pecorino and artichokes. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Do you but have a favorite reason, they brand of... Like because canned artichokes often have that sort of like sour taste. Do you have a, a favorite brand of candle. I don't really have a favorite brand, but I prefer the ones in brine versus the ones in oil. Okay. Maybe that helps. I don't. Yeah. I just like, I don't, I feel like all the oil marinades have a spice mix or like an oregano or whatever that I'm like, not not like oregano that I'm not, that I am not asking for. Among my least favorite spices is oregano. Yeah. Yes. A hundred percent. Thank you so much to Hello Tushy for sponsoring today's episode. So I feel like I've talked about my colonoscopy on this podcast. And so we are finally, finally in a place where we can comfortably discuss bidets, right? That that feels like the level of intimacy we're working with now. So in all honesty, I had never tried a bidet before, even like if I've stayed in a hotel that has one, it's always just felt kind of intimidating to me, very European. I didn't really understand how to approach it. And then I don't know if you have also noticed this, but it seems like over the last year, I've just been seeing people sort of sending out the message that we've all been sleeping on the bidet and it's time to wake up, time to get on the bidet bandwagon. So I've definitely been sort of curious about it. And here's the thing. 
Bidets are usually really expensive, which is probably why most of us did not grow up cleaning our butts with them. But the Hello Tushy Modern Bidet attachment latches right onto your existing toilet with no electricity or additional plumbing needed. And it's only $79, which is also honestly going to pay for itself eventually because it cuts toilet paper use by 80% because it's hands-free and you don't have to wipe it all. It just cleans your butt with a steady stream of precise water. And speaking of toilet paper, wouldn't it be nice not to stress about having enough of it during lockdown part two? It's like if you thought puzzles were a really valuable part of pandemic life, just wait until you meet the Hello Tushy bidet. Here's some other stuff to know about using a bidet. It's actually a really healthy and environmentally friendly alternative to toilet paper. Wiping with dry paper or wet wipes can contribute to UTIs, yeast infections, and hemorrhoids. Holler at my fellow postpartum people. And it can also lead to skin breakdown and thinning. Hello Tushy uses just one pint of water with every wash versus the millions of trees and billions of gallons of water that are used to produce toilet paper every year. Every Hello Tushy bidet attachment comes with a 60-day risk-free happy butt guarantee and a 12-month warranty. Right now, they're running a Black Friday promotion for the holidays. Get 15% off Hello Tushy bidets plus free shipping right now at hellotushy.com slash a thing or two. This is Hello Tushy's best offer and it ends on November 29th. So make your holidays a little happier and a little cleaner this year by going to hellotushy.com slash a thing or two for 15% off bidets and free shipping. Today's episode is brought to you by Curious Tribe. Every week, Curious Tribe sends out a free inspirational email designed to help you live a happier, healthier life. Curious Tribe is cultivating joy in these strange times by teaching emotional intelligence and sharing inspirational content. Each issue includes original illustration, a motivational pep talk, and interesting links curated by Justin Shields. Curious Tribe is an inclusive community that's focused on amplifying the voices of people of color. By day, founder Justin Shields works in advertising, but he started Curious Tribe because he wanted to be a small part in building a more beautiful world by making practical self-care and wellness accessible. Sign up today at CuriousTribe.com. Again, that's CuriousTribe.com to sign up to receive the Curious Tribe newsletter. I'm Anisha Ramakrishna, and I'm an Indian entrepreneur and TV personality with big dick energy. You may know me from Bravo TV's Family Karma and, of course, social media. I grew up in a very conservative Indian family, but I have always forged my own path and live life on my own terms. I recently left my successful career in New York City and my long-term relationship to pursue my own fashion business. I'm single in my mid-30s and I live with my parents. I'm currently cringing and I know you are too. Join me as I spill the chai on my own cringeworthy personal life experiences every Thursday, anywhere you listen to podcasts. I also just wanted to take a minute to shout out artichoke dip. Um, mm. Something I was not even aware of as a thing until one summer when I was in college, a friend took what? me. Yeah, no, I didn't. I was unfamiliar. And then a friend took me to Houston's, which is now known as Hillstone. Yeah. Um, not to be confused with Hillsong, the church. The cool. Not to, be, church. not to be confused by people who are, for people who are following that <laughs> yeah. story, which I am <laughs> following quite yeah. closely. You're um, a devoted follower of the Hillsong story. That's right. <laughs> not a devoted follower of Hillstone and was never a devoted follower of Houston's because we didn't have it in my town growing up. And then I went there with a friend who was like, well, of course you have to have the spinach artichoke dip. And I was like, excuse me. And you know, it's fine as any mayonnaise yeah. based dip is. I mean, I don't like the way that you framed that. I, <laughs> I think that was rude to mayonnaise for sure. Um, okay, yeah, you're right. I sorry. I what I meant to say was like, 
any dip that is based in mayonnaise is starting from a level of being like, of course it's good. Thank you. Okay. Yes, I, I appreciate that I reframing. That. Yes. Um, I appreciate that reframing. And then, you know, from there you can go from like good to outstanding, but if there's a lot of mayonnaise in it, of course it's going to be good. I'm so intrigued because I think in the Midwest, there might've just been a lot more spinach artichoke dip establishments. I don't I'm know. Sure. I, well, the, I, you know, I would, I frequented Bennigan's, um, in high school, which was yeah. like an Irish TGI Fridays type thing. <laughs> like, <laughs> sure. <laughs> okay. What about it would you say was Irish besides its name? Bennigan's? It was extremely Irish. Okay. Besides its name and decor, what on the menu was Irish? Oh, I have no idea, but I think <laughs> right. it did. I think it might've had, okay. That's not true. What was the thing? The turkey O'Toole. That was my okay, favorite sandwich. That was your <laughs> it's called sandwich. the O'Toole. That's so yeah. Irish. Yeah, um, totally. I think it might have. <laughs> they might have had artichoke dip there, and I never ordered it. The other thing I'll say about Bennigan's is R.I.P. because it's no longer yeah. around. Listen, you loved them deeply, and I'm sorry I for really your did. loss. I think um, there's still like one standing in Chicago recently or randomly. I think that's right. I think yeah. we did discover that not that long yeah. ago. Um, yeah. But I hope my favorite never leaves us. I hope Chili's, Chili's is here till the end of time. Do they have a take on artichoke dip? No, they do like a queso right. situation. As Although they, they might have at some point, but TJ Fridays and Applebee's and like the various other Ruby Tuesday. restaurants. Yeah, we had a Cheddar's restaurant. They definitely had a spinach artichoke dip. Did people, yeah. some people also do like a crab artichoke dip. Is that right? Am I mixing mm-hmm. this up? No, that's right. Okay. That's I right. think I like that more. I think yeah. I don't love spinach that much. Exactly. Do you think that people have heard enough of us talking about artichokes or do you think they want more? I would say what's enough. <laughs> that's what you would say. Should we bring um, on our guest? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Um, we had such a wonderful conversation with an, our old pal, Sam Valenti, who's technically Sam Valenti the fourth. So if you see him around the internet, he's a lot of the times he's S-V-I-V. Um, mm, he is the so fourth. So good. He might so be good. the only fourth that I know. He is the founder of Ghostly International, which is home to two of America's finest independent record labels, Ghostly and Spectral Sound. He grew up in the suburbs of Detroit, was fascinated by the city's musical transition from Motown to techno, um, has a ton of hometown pride. And he picked up his first pair of decks at the age of 15, adopted the <laughs> amazing moniker DJ Space Ghost, and began tutelage under some of Detroit's most respected DJs. And then at the ripe old age of 19, he decided right to launch old. his own <laughs> decided to launch his own record label. We talked to Sam basically about everything having to do with the record label, but um forgive including me. what is it? Include I including what is it? That's really the caveat I wanted to give, which is that we are not big music heads for all of our curiosities in life. Um, we don't know as much about music. So we've really asked him to like get down to the basics with us. But he's in general, just such an interesting person to follow um, his work and follow him on the internet because he's really smart. Um, Obviously, if he's kept a record, an independent record label alive for the last 20 years, he's figured something out. And he's just like a really curious and um, interesting person. A kindred spirit for sure. For sure. Okay, let's bring him on. Sam, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. We are right. thrilled to have you. All right. So let's just get into it. You started a music label in 1999. How old were you? I was um, 19. Wow. Yeah. What, what gave you the guts? Who gave you the well, right? Exactly. I mean, <laughs> Who gave you how did you know anything at 19? <laughs> just to like, inf- you know, inform your listeners, because a record label is kind of a 
it's kind of an old school concept. Yeah. Right? I honestly don't really means... know what it is. Right, and I'm let's... looking forward to you explaining it to us. <laughs> Before we like dive into the particulars, let's let's rewind the idea of what a record label is. Please. Yeah. Right? Please. Okay. So in the historical sense, the record label is the company that most of the time finances, uh, helps, um, record, you know, finances, the recording of the marketing of the production of the distribution of recordings. So at the beginning, uh, I'm, I'm sure someone's going to call me out for the wrong history, but obviously that's sort of cylinders and, you know, early records. And then obviously we moved to, to the seven inch record sort of pre Beatles and sort of buying, you know, hear a song on the radio and be able to buy it at your local store. The label, the label, literally the paper label on the record had the logo. So Motown or Stacks or whatever. And, you know, so the label to me, fast forwarding a little bit is the idea of a company. It's like a, it's like an art gallery where, you know, you know, MoMA has a certain kind of programming. It has a certain aesthetic. Obviously it changes depending on who is the director at the time. But there's a set, there's a there's a thesis to the concept. I think the great record labels like like Motown or in its heyday Def Jam, or um, you know in the classic Miles Davis Bob Dylan era Columbia Records, which is part of Sony now. Um, it's it's sort of an ethos, right? So I look at it as an editorial slant on music. Is how I look at my label. The one that I know something about because I recently watched a really good documentary on it was Blue Note which I felt like did a really good job explaining exactly what you just said. Like it was an ethos. It wasn't just about the music. There was so much more to it. That's a great example. And also the art direction of Blue Note is so iconic. Yes, exactly. Yes, yes. And I think that for me, you know, um, in 99, you're still, CDs are still king, queen, the thing. There's no downloads. Downloads are starting to come on to... um, you know, broadband, like my first broadband connection was my freshman year in college to date myself. And sort of piracy in quotes, air quotes, was how a lot of my friends and myself were starting to get music. I, I bought records. I still buy vinyl records. I have, I don't know, 10,000 vinyl records and um, thousands of CDs, but... You have 10,000 vinyl records? I know, records. I'm just to come back myself. to that for a second. <laughs> I'm like, I've is it counted. wrong to stop you to ask you how you organize them and where <laughs> I mean, they're stored? Poorly, I mean, to, to look at... To, you know, they're, they're to look everywhere. behind you. Yeah. They're everywhere. I mean, I, yeah. they're, they're in my parents' basement. They're in storage units. They're here. I mean, it's, it's a mess. But anyway, records to me are val- a very valuable part of culture. They're also like a time stamp. Um, because they're kind of like an antique, right? If you find, I, I've bought records in India and, you know, all over the States and Europe. And I remember, I remember where I was when I got them. So it's kind of like a travel log. Back to my bad history lesson, you know, the Beatles and, and bands of that ilk sort of pushed the demand for the LP um, as a concept. Because obviously before it was such a singles market because the radio would play songs and you just wanted to get a song on the radio. I think the vinyl Which I learned LP, about recently by watching that thing you do, like for, for <laughs> the first time in a decade. It's actually a really good movie about the record business. It totally. is. And um, the vinyl LP, I think it's designed, I think the length of it is like one of the symphonies. That's why the length, and same with the CD, the length of them is, was predicated on some piece of classical music. But the L, when artists started having album-like uh, gestures, which Beatles really helped popularize and artists of that era the vinyl LP became like the thing. So 12 inch vinyl has stayed relatively the same minus some manufacturing 
quality increases since that era. That's what's fun about them is they all fit in the same record player. Some people collect seven inch 45 still. That's like a whole nother racket that I don't even, I just don't even allow myself to look at it because it's like <laughs> a, a rabbit hole unto itself. But I collect vinyl LPs and the first ghostly release in 99 was a 12 inch single. So it had, it had four songs on it. You know, it was meant for DJs. This is before downloads and streaming. And what's happened is vinyl went down. I can't do an air. I can't use my Italian hand uh, gestures in the <laughs> podcast, but vinyl really suffered obviously for a long time and continue the CD overtook vinyl overtook cassettes and vinyl, I think really only had a resurgence in the last like eight to 10 years. I don't have the exact numbers, but I think recently CDs just, or sorry, vinyl just eclipsed CDs in mm. total sales in the States. Wow. And there's more pressing plants open than I can ever remember for making records because it's actually a pretty laborious process. So for this heavy, fragile, kind of annoying medium, it's held on for some reason. And I still love making records. Um, artists like Jack White, you know, have really developed whole brands around vinyl and it's sort of a communion between the past and the present. So mm-hmm. you can go to a rough trade in Brooklyn or a lot of the cool secondhand stores like Academy or Captured or in, in Brooklyn and, and you can buy new records and you can buy old records. And I love, I love that like bookstores, you can kind of bounce back and forth in time. Thank you so much to MoMA Design Store for sponsoring today's episode. Um, so we are officially in holiday season. It's happening. It's totally happening. It's holiday shopping season. Yeah, it's we're here. We're here. And I just realized in looking around that in this very room that I'm in right now, there are two, two things that were purchased for me last holiday season from MoMA Design Store that I love dearly. That you cared enough to bring with you to A, a new home and B, put right there in your bedroom. That's right. There, one is on my right, one is on my left. Here Love that. <laughs> so the Moment Design Store, if you do not know, is the home of good design. And every single product they carry is reviewed by MoMA curators, the very same ones responsible for what is on view at the museum. Their assortment of products is thoughtful, beautiful, well-researched, and meaningful. I feel like I learn a lot about art and design just by browsing their website, which you know says a lot for an e-com experience. Honestly, that's the best when you're shopping and feel like you're being educated at the same time. The holiday selection at the MoMA Design Store is so good. It's also so big and has enough range in terms of category, price point, style that you could very much knock off everybody on your gifting list in one go. So we pulled together a gift guide of sorts on their site. It's basically a curation of all the things they carry that we would love to get or give. It includes, among other things, this kitchen scale that Erica is absolutely obsessed with and talks about more than I've ever heard a single person talk about a kitchen scale. Claire, I used it today. Oh my gosh, what'd you use it for? I used it to weigh my rabbit and she is two pounds, 14 ounces. You're welcome. Congratulations to all two pounds and 14 ounces of your (laughs) rabbit. That's right. Her goal weight's three, (laughs) so we'll see. (laughs) You can do it, Ash. I know you can. Um, We also included this amazing jumbo $6 smush crayon designed by Todd Oldham. It is perfect little stocking stuffer for your kids, for your nephew, or honestly for an a creative adult because it's like this beautiful art object that is also a crayon and each one has colors inspired by a different work of art in MoMA. Um, we also included this incredibly chic ruler that's the style that is perfect for your home office. We are always getting questions about chic 
office supplies because now everybody's office is their home office and they want it to be good looking. And then I think the thing that is sort of at the top of things we like to get list is yes, this, isi, it, it's so good. It's this Isimiyaki pleats, please tote. You know, we love this line of like pants and dresses and tops. They have this incredible tote that's so beautiful that when you're not using it, it folds up into this like slim little line that you can just pop in a larger bag. There's so much other stuff on there. Go check it out. It's all at store.moma.org slash a thing or two. That's where you're going to find all of our picks. You can go shop online at store.moma.org. Or if you happen to be in New York City, they have locations in Soho, Midtown, and at the museum. Every purchase you make at MoMA Design Store supports the museum's education programs. Everyone's like, why do you like vinyl? Is it because it sounds better? And I'm not, I'm not that person. Like I don't, yeah. I'm not the, the snob who's like, oh, it's a more perfect replication. Because honestly, we all, we listen to music on AirPods and computer speakers and phone speakers. They're not, we're not really like that deep in the mix, but I think vinyl as a, as a totem or a talisman is still a cool thing. Mm-hmm. And I love that kids are rediscovering it. But I, but the reality is that our music is mostly consumed now via streaming um, or on YouTube or places like that. And that's great because when I started, the dream was how to get your music into stores. And yep. At the time, like Virgin Megastore, Tower Records, and it was all this effort to get distribution. And now it's like, oh, I can upload a song and it's everywhere in the world in two days. And I, I think that's such a magical thing. So we kind of have the best of, record label have the best of the past. We have vinyl things still going and we have digital going. So there's a lot of conversations right now about royalty rates and a lot of things that need to be figured out, but at least it's music is back on the radar as a a real business. Whereas when I started, there's about 10 years there where everyone's like, oh, the music industry is dead. Right. Because Napster launched in 2001. Is that right? And you had... Roughly. Yeah. 2000, 2001. Yeah. Exactly. So this is right after you started a music label. Yeah, like shows my my intelligence started right <laughs> at the worst possible time in but the music did, industry. What did make you want to start Ghostly? I was trying to think about that recently because it just it still eludes me. I, I think I think if you really love anything and and your careers speak to this as well, you find a place in the culture and the supply chain where you can add value, where you think you can add value. What you've done with your businesses is about perspective, right? You're finding artists, you're finding products, you're finding creators and helping filter weed from chaff for customers. A record label in my mind does, does that as well. And I'm not a musician. I'm an okay DJ at best, but it wasn't, I knew it wasn't going to be my career. I thought I could add value by starting a, a boutique label that helped under appreciated artists get a leg up. How did you develop your point of view as a label or like as a, like for lack of a better word, curator? Well, it comes from DJing, right? So DJing, I always started DJing in high school. I was like a, a DJ to school dances, like the house parties and brought the big speakers. And like my dad <laughs> drove me to my first gig and I like dragged the speakers around. It was bigger than me. But you learn how to respond to a crowd. Um, this is before I, you could use a, a laptop to play. So the, the box of records I brought had to suffice for the whole dance or the whole party. And then you're thinking about transition. You're like, okay, if I'm going to go to this speed, I can't drop the speeds all the way down because it'll kill the energy. So it starts with that. And it's sort of a macro view. And now everybody's sort of a DJ with playlisting and, and streaming and stuff. 
which I love. But then you start to think about what you love and what you respond to. And so growing up in the Detroit area, you had obviously the old school Motown stuff. You had a lot of cool hip hop. Um, Jay Dilla and Eminem were contemporary when I was coming out, like their, their early work. And then Detroit techno, electronic music, you know, um, the way we know it now, a lot of it comes from Detroit and neighboring cities um, and the Midwest. So I was kind of just immersed in that music. And I, I found like, felt like I could find um, underground artists that I could help put their music out. Because you were going to shows and clubs and concerts and stuff, and you were finding people that way. And were people taking you seriously as a 19-year-old? Well, I sort of reversed. I, it's weird because I, I found my college application letter, like my sort of cover letter, whatever it was called. And I, I said I wanted to start a record label, but I hadn't, didn't know any artists yet. So I think <laughs> I had the vessel before like the, the art. Yeah. Um, so I knew I wanted to do it, but I hadn't met anybody. And then I met our first artist, my first week of college, coincidentally, um, the first artist I started collaborating with, I still work with Matthew Deere. That's um, amazing. Yeah. Just, I saw him at a party playing music with his like synthesizer and drum machine. And, you know, it was like five people in the basement. <laughs> and I was like, this is cool. Like we should get together. And I gave him my number, vice versa. And we had like, went to a, a deli that was like famous in Ann Arbor and had a sandwich. Zingerman's. And, Zingerman's. Yes. yes. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> You know, um, <laughs> and yeah, and and the rest is history. And and then you put out, I put out the one record, and then other artists nearby um, sort of sending me music, and so it just sort of beget it begets more stuff. The more you do, the more people come to you, and it sort of took its own life from there, its own, its own form from there. So sorry to be ask something so incredibly basic, but how does a music label make money? It's a great question. Historically, again, selling records. So um, I would sell them out of the back of my Explorer to stores, like on consignment, just like the first couple hundred. Uh, then you, then at the time, you had to get a distribution deal. So you had to send your records to a warehouse who then would take orders from all of the, you know, 500 record stores in the States or wherever. Now, a Bandcamp uh, account or a lot of the, a lot of services you can upload your own music. You can have your own label now without doing any anything, which is cool. But to answer your question, if you download a song or you stream a song or um, even a song gets used in a YouTube video, there's some degree of royalty that follows its way back to the artist. And, and we're in that, that chain trying to capture value, trying to create value for artists with their recordings. We also put music in commercials and TV shows and video games. So like the licensing is a big part of what we do. Um, and, you know, old school selling records and we sell a lot of cool products on our site. So it's kind of like at all, you have to, you have to turn on all of those uh, faucets and try to collect what you can and, and get it back to the artists. So it's, the industry has changed a ton, but in the same, in a lot of ways it hasn't changed that much. You're just trying to make sure you want some people to hear your stuff. And if they like it, they'll pass it on and they'll market it for you. But um, there's so much music coming out. Like there's so many, everything coming out. How do you get the, you have to market and help the music find a public. And how are you, what's your sort of mindset when it comes to the constant change and like, for lack of a better word, turmoil in the music industry that's been going on since, you know, Napster hit the scene? 
Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think you have to look at it. You have to be sort of tech forward. I think the last 20 years you've had to sort of ride all these different waves. You know, I thought, you know, to me, piracy was a gift, right? It was people who wanted your music, even though they weren't giving you money up front, they at least were showing intention to, to, there was to enjoy desire it. there. Yeah, exactly. And I yeah. think the music, the music industry writ large, the major, the major labels, especially sort of bobbled that touchdown pass because they could have realized that there was demand there and re re-engineered it to say, okay, you know, what, where we're at now is what should have happened then to some degree, but it's taken 20 years to 20 plus years to get to a, a degree of conversation and a degree of availability, which is still very contentious. Um, but at least there's money trading hands for every play, most every play out there, which I think is a huge innovation. There's just a lot of legal and other things that have to, to follow. Sam, you mentioned that one of the revenue streams or one of the ways you started to think about making money was pro- like non-music product. And I feel like you were super early to that. I mean, not knowing that much about how music labels or the music industry operates, but how did you come to the idea of working on those kinds of projects? And how did you think about who you wanted to collaborate on those things? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think retail has always been a really big part of my personal development. Back to your question about like, how do you choose your, your thesis as a label, yeah. your curatorial thing? Well, as a kid, I'd come to New York with my parents and would, you know, I had a friend here. So we would go downtown and sort of late nineties, New York and go to like flea markets and vintage stores and record stores and Supreme and, you know, when it was early and like that retail has always been discovery for me. And I always felt like ghostly, even though there's not, we've had pop-up shops, but it's a, it's not a, a retail brand. I think of us as a multi, a three-dimensional company. And um, why wouldn't we offer, you know, so the first ghostly website had my friend made these interesting little like vases. We had a couple of them on there and my friend made these like sort of interesting gift card or uh, greeting cards that were kind of like early on the sarcastic greeting card thing. Looking back, yeah. he was like the first I had ever seen those. Like they barely sold, but the idea was that ghostly was like a complete world even though we hadn't really gotten there yet. And so I think the collaboration thing, you know, um, early for us was Warby Parker. And, you know, I think 2000, I forget exactly what year at the look, but, you know, just trying to, you know, to talk to Neil at Warby and was like, I saw him speak and I was like, Hey, it'd be cool to do a collaboration. And he got the idea that it wasn't like, Oh, let's make a record. It was like, let's put ghostly ethos with our products you know, package it with a playlist, package it with cool, like have the models be DJs and artists. And he like understood and, and the team was really su- supportive of that. So, and now, as you said, every, everything's a collaboration and, and you know, to, maybe to some detriment, um, there's too many collabs. So, but regardless, there's always going to be interesting collaborations. And I always look at Ghostly as a point of view, as opposed to a product company. It's like, it's a, it's a design ethos. It's a music ethos. So it made collaborating possible. Can you describe the point of view and the ethos? That's a really good question. And I should be able to do that. I think, I think for me, it's trying to make everything, everything Ghostly does is through the lens of an artist for the most part, or a create a creative person. So in the case of um, the Warby sunglasses, um, the lens cloth was by a designer, Su Gwen Chung, 
And the, um, again, the models were creatives and they, there was like sort of a playlist that went with it. And we had the original like visual assets that went with it. And the idea is that everything is a collaboration we make, even if we don't call it that. Every record is that, right? Because there's an album, there's the vinyl or the, there's the music and then there's the cover. So I think it's like, you're trying to, thinking about American design institutions like Herman Miller or whatever, they understood that like you, and, and I think the, the Midwest modernist thing is a big part of the inspiration of, of Ghostly, that why, why wouldn't you have everything touched by creative hands and made better through an artistic lens? So whether it's a record or a t-shirt or whatever, it, it is speaking from the point of view of an artist and ghostly sort of the invisible hand that helps bring these people together. So I guess it's an erstwhile community for lack of a better word. We don't have a sort of design sensibility, but I think it's trying to sort of not push. It's more pull. It's more like you're welcome in, but it's not trying to be salesy as a voice. And it's also supposed to be a little bit whimsical and a little irreverent in the sense of it shouldn't, it should play with expectations. Uh, some things don't make sense. Some things are um, purely for the sake of the art, for the sake of art. But it has a sense of whimsy and a sense of play that if you care to dig in, you can get more out of it than what you what first appears is what I hope comes through. What makes someone a ghostly artist? I think we're looking for perspective. Um, obviously, again, everyone now can make music on their computer or their phone, which is awesome, or to make or design or do Photoshop or um, take photos and and make quality work. But the voices that you know, and you know it when you see it, especially in your in your line of work, someone can take the means of production, whether it's an Instagram filter, and elevate it just above the, mm-hmm. the bar, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think that's, that's a really good example. Right. I mean, you yeah. can just tell yeah. and a song yeah. too. Like I could have the exact same software as you and the exact same speakers and big studio, but a, a kid can make this in her studio, you know, on her laptop, but has that thing that pushes yeah. it over the line. So I'm always looking for that thing, which is sort of indescribable, but you know it when you see it or hear it. I have a funny question and that shows like how foreign the idea of like music as a profession is to me. When you are listening to new music and you're trying to assess it, are you just like sitting there listening to it fully focused on the music? Can you do other stuff while you're listening to it? Or are you like, all right, 9 a.m. to 11 p.m. This is my music listening no. time and that's all I'm doing. I, and again, I, I, I'm like a bad, I'm like a Philistine. I'm not the person who sits with like a glass of wine and stares at the wall and mm-hmm. like <laughs> really like and broods over it. I can't do that. Um, because I actually am the opposite. I like playing music. Um, while I'm doing other things and, yeah. and let, let's let the song or the, the track push into my consciousness. Yeah. Either I'm like, wow, this is amazing. And I, I'm in the best mood. And then I, I, then I go back to my iTunes and see what demo it is, or it jar, jars me out of the conversation and I have to Shazam on TV or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like I want to be sort of moved by the thing. If I can ignore it, then, then everyone's going to ignore it. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I wish I was more of a, like, more erudite and, like, slow listener, but I actually like... Well, but I that's not how most people listen to it, right? That's not how your audience is likely to be listening to it. Right. Which is offensive to some people that it's, it is background for a lot of people, but I also argue that that's been 
the case for a long time. You know, yeah. the, the Walkman is 30, maybe 40 years old now. Brian Eno was in the Times complaining about the Walkman, it's sort of headphone <laughs> culture. But I, I, I disagree. I, I, his idea is that it disconnects you. But I find that listening to music uh, connects me to the moment and the, the I mood. think so too. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's also like woven into your life then. Um, it's You're not building this, a soundtrack. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. certainly there, I, there are a lot of things I couldn't do if I wasn't listening to music while doing them, like running being the first one that comes to mind. Yeah, I don't think of it as an insult to the music. I think of it as a compliment. It's really remarkable that you've had the same job now for 20 years. And Half pres- your life. <laughs> it's yeah, like, it's weird. How have you kept yourself engaged all these years? Well, I think we've built enough surface area to be able to do different things. So my days, you know, obviously it's mostly focused on the core job of music, but I also have allowed us to venture into product collaboration. Um, sorry for the street noise. Um, <laughs> You're uh, in New York. It happens. Exa- exactly. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I've done startups that have gone next to Ghostly. I try to get excited about different things. Um, I'm not really a hobbyist. I don't have a ton of like a, a personal interest beyond what the work I do. But I like going to book fairs. I like going to see movies or like I like going to see movies. Um, I guess it's like trying to take inspiration from things that aren't your core industry because otherwise it, then, it's, then it starts to get a little dull, right? I don't know how you've experienced it with, because you've done... I mean, I think we're the same way where like at Of A Kind, we managed to launch like six sub brands somehow that like I'm not sure anybody followed what all, how all of them connected. What the through lines were there. <laughs> and now we have a podcast and a newsletter and a membership program and a consulting business on the side and XYZ. And yeah, I and it makes me feel good that you're like, I'm not a hobbyist because I feel the same way. And I always wish I had a hobby, but I think same. if I find an interest, what tends to happen is that we figure out a way to incorporate it into our jobs. And so there, then it's just all a job <laughs> for better or worse. Right. I saw a good like, you know, letter press bookmark. My friend posted on Instagram. It was like, do what you love and you'll never work a day. And then it, the, the bottom <laughs> lines are crossed. It's like in Jason Poland type writing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's crossed. The bottom lines are crossed out and it says, do what you love and you'll, <laughs> you'll never be able to separate your personal life from your work and you'll be really touchy all the time. <laughs> like, exactly, the, exactly. The correction, <laughs> which is like, yeah, that's the price you pay. But I, yeah. I just look at it. We don't have a choice, right? Yeah. You, yeah. you know, you, you, you both are curious and having a podcast where you interview people and, mm-hmm. and talk to each other is about curiosity. Yeah. So you just like learning new stuff. Yeah. 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 Yes. Um, related to this, how do you separate or do you, I guess, like your personal identity as Sam from the business? Because I think that's something that, you know, I struggled with during the 10 years that we ran of a kind is like, who is Erica, the co-founder of this business versus Erica, like the person? Yeah, I think this. I had the same challenge early on, and, and probably too to some degree. Um, I think also when both of us started our companies, I think the the sort of founder sort of mythos was like mm-hmm. at full capacity. Yeah. And I think that that was kind of a little bit of a false bill of goods. And obviously, yeah. we've seen some of the wreckage that's that's created with WeWork and other brand. I mean, not not at the because of the employees or anything wrong, but because these sort of founder. Because it's this like a tour model that just doesn't like make sense. Yeah. Right. And if you have any 
brains, you look at the history of these companies and there's a few that have this sort of same founder forever, but a lot of them were smart enough to get out of the way or hire complimentary people or whatever. I think it's like the good to great book. You know, it's all, it's actually charismatic founders are actually sort of like a curse to some companies. So I think as I got older, you just realized that, um, you know, as much as you are the driver, ultimately the thing lives past you. And it's with the people that purchase your stuff, people that work with you, the world, you know, so I, I, I've just gotten also just having your own life, having a partner or having a personal identity um, outside of that. But it, take, it took time for sure, because you want to give everything you have to this thing that you're creating, but yep. you also can kind of give up your, your identity too. Um, where are you getting your music news um, or content in general, like from podcasts, newsletters, Twitter follows? Yeah, social is always great. Um, you know, and, and then obviously there's a t- ton of sites um, that I, I, I shouldn't say there's a ton of sites. There's actually only a handful. So I think the, I think the playlist has become super valuable as like an editorial source. And that, and that doesn't just mean streaming. Um, I think Bandcamp, um, my friend Avalon Emerson has a company called, or a project called um, By Music Club, bymusicclub.com, I think. Um, where she she curates handmade lists of her friends um, who are DJs and artists. Anybody can submit stuff, but it's very well curated for Bandcamp. There's a uh, a site slash account called Black Bandcamp. Bandcamp.com is a great self-distribution platform, um, has been doing really great promotions, and Black Bandcamp curates Black artists, labels, and DJs. And so, like, I like the handmade list always, right? Yeah. Um, and then the friends who have, you know, my friends at Numero Group is a really Love cool reissue. Yeah. yeah, right? Like amazing taste. They have a ton of great playlists on, on the usual uh, streaming services. And I just, and I ask, I ask people for playlists. If I see them post something about a band I like or something, I'll be like, hey, do you, do you have a, because everyone has a playlist of some sort. And they're sort. always happy to share. Yeah, everyone loves sharing music. So I, I will I totally of, share the playlist I have for my son's bedtime routine with you. I would love that. <laughs> Anytime. I would love that. Because you have learn you, a lot. Yeah. Well, you I, haven't discovered much Elmo recently, probably. Yeah. <laughs> I heard, though, when, when you have a, a little person, uh, your your algorithm gets changes a lot. So I was really nervous about that. But I actually, my my experience, and maybe I'm reading this wrong, is I think Spotify has figured it out and said like, okay, we're not going to put Elmo on your Discover Weekly. We're going to make one daily mix for you that's just Elmo and Daniel Tiger. That said, Cam does have questionable taste in more contemporary and adult <laughs> music as well. He's, I'm so ashamed to admit this, into the B-52s and I was not the person responsible for exposing him to it. But so now I do have to listen to Love Shack sometimes and that is indeed screwing with my algorithm. <laughs> There should be like a parent, a reverse parental control where <laughs> yes. you can like, yeah. Remove yes. this. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think it's not like, yeah, I think like taste engines and, you know, there's, there's so much to do. And just back to like being an old person, like myself, thinking back to cassette, making cassettes and burning CDs and mm-hmm. that gesture of giving music is still like an unfinished conversation. And I think yeah. that, that will, there's like another whole business there. That will That's evolve. so interesting. Yeah, we're just even like what you do with with products, with your newsletter and yeah. the, and the site. It's like I want someone to show me, right? I think everyone wants that. 
but you have to trust the source. You have to like vet it to make sure it's not like, you know, it's at least to some degree of authenticity there. I don't know. I think but there's a lot of um, perspective and like my friend Riley's obsessed with like micro content, like a playlist that you make for Erica and I yep. there is like the best thing you can get. And the more people you add to that, the more sort of diffuse it gets. Right. And right. so there's a lot of inverted, everyone's been focused on scale the last, you know, 20 years, especially with like startup posts 2.0 startup boom. Yeah. If it's probably over, I guess. But I think there's like an inversion on that that's Mm -hmm. coming. And I think you're seeing it with, with what you're doing and and the Substack economy where it's like, I want, you know, micro media companies. Yeah. Yeah. But I also miss the gilded era of, you know, I wish, I wish I could get five great writers in one Substack sometimes too. Mm -hmm. So I think there'll be a community I think that will start there. to happen. Yeah. We've been starting yeah. to talk about that of like, how how are all of these things going to start fitting together? And will there be like partnerships or collaborations or these like, you know, right. what's the like mini Hearst or mini Condé Nast or whatever. Those are terrible examples to use. But no, you know I mean, what I mean? Th- yeah. A continuous, a continuous yeah. lean just partnered with another men's fashion sub stack and they're cool. now one. Um, so yeah. I think, yeah, you'll start to see it more and more. I think it's I think it's great. I've been enjoying um how long gone um, yeah. the Chris Black playlist or um podcast a lot and mm-hmm. and then Jeans, who's a fellow electronic music person. Um but and what you do, I think hanging out, like you two hanging out, which I know is like the core of your, all of your businesses and being like <laughs> You're friends. the first person to articulate it that way. And I think you're not wrong. <laughs> yeah. <But like laughs> it's really what it all has to, in common. <laughs> but, it's, but it's pleasant because it's, yeah. I'm privy to a friendship and like a candor that's like, it relaxes my, you know, my shoulders where and you guys are having fun. And I think all the great radio, like there was a hip hop show called Stretch and Bobbito in the nineties on like Barnard radio or whatever. It was like mm-hmm. uptown and, they had like Wu-Tang and Nas and Big E before they were stars, but it was them like laughing and goofing that made it the show. And then yeah. like the music was like the plusing. Yeah. So I think this level of like fun, and I love that podcasts are finding this sort of new wave. I- I'm excited for stuff like this, you know, yeah. to-, to grow and manifest. We really love Ebro in the morning, the Hot 97 morning show for just the reason you articulated. It's it's a delight. We they're our true inspiration for this podcast. That's 100%. awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Hundred <laughs> percent. Should have them on. We were. Oh I mean, God. listen. We've, we've tried. kind of tried. Well, we didn't try hard, that hard, but um, we did try a little. I think I sent one email. We've put it out into the universe. Yeah. Okay. Right. <laughs> it's, it's the crossover it's that the audio world has been waiting for. Someone's gonna hear it. Yeah. And then those <laughs> are like you know the the beat battles that were happening in quarantine. Mm-hmm. Like it's fun. And I I think I think it was Soderbergh talking about like Ocean's Eleven. And he's like, it's fun to watch talented people do stuff well. I forget the mm-hmm. exact quote, but it's the idea of like yeah. competency. I think that's why like The Last Dance was such a good podcast or a yes. um, documentary sure. series is like, we obviously have been living in an era where like mediocrity and um, lies and all this like disinformation has been so wanting to be good at something is really fun to watch, especially when people and are like good working at and striving for it and yeah, putting in the time, like all of that. Yeah. yeah like we're not, yeah. we don't like hustling is cool, but it's cool to also, you know, hustling in the old school sense, but like, it's cool to watch people have fun and do a good job. Yeah. yeah. There's not enough stuff that rewards that. So thanks for doing I love that, that for us. <laughs>
Thank you, Sam. Thank Sam, you this for was doing wonderful. it. This was truly um, wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on and for doing what you do. And I'm so excited for more and more people to discover Ghostly. That's the show. This has been a production of Dear Media. You can follow us on Instagram at a thing or two HQ. You can listen to us wherever podcasts are found like Stitcher, iTunes, and Spotify. If you have ideas for the show or want to advertise, email podcast at a thing or two HQ.com. Find show notes and much more on a thing or two HQ.com.